0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards and I have here today Dr Pierce Gooding. We're going to talk about his book, A New Area for Mental Health Law and Policy, Supported Decision Making and the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and that was published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. I'll just tell you a little bit about our guest. Dr Gooding is a research fellow at the Melbourne Social Equity Institute and Melbourne Law School and is currently an open science fellow at the Mozilla Foundation. His work focuses on law and politics of disability and mental health, with a special interest in issues of legal capacity, decision-making, technology, and human rights. Pierce, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: It's great to have you. And now, just to get us started, um, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write your book, A New Area for Mental Health, Law and Policy, supported decision-making and the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities?
1: Sure, um, I'm a socio-legal researcher, so I consider myself a, a person who works at the intersection of humanities and law. Uh, and I've had a long-standing interest in disability uh, and in mental health, particularly. I actually have an undergraduate uh, with a major in history, uh, and one of the things I was very interested in was the history of the asylum and the history of um, psychiatries and the history of what you might call madness, uh, certainly in the 19th century. Uh, And uh, that really drew me into the orbit of mental health legislation, which I think is a fascinating area of law. Uh, And I was privileged to be invited to undertake a PhD at Monash Law School uh, concerning the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities Uh, and mental health legislation. Uh, So I started that in 2010, which was just two years after the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities came into force. And it was a really challenging international human rights legal instrument for uh, what was, you know, 200 years of of law, and you could even go back further, uh, around responding to people uh, in, in... crises or mental health crises uh, with severe mental illness, however, it's described um, by the various parties who have a stake in these debates. So I was uh, lucky enough to turn my PhD, I suppose, into this book, and that's uh, how it came to be.
0: That's, a, um, your background is really interesting, actually. It must have been really exciting to be working um, on your PhD in 2010, like two years after the convention. Um sort of came into force and your background is really interesting too um, having an undergraduate influent, uh, interest in um mental health and the asylum is it's like quite unique i think um so then i want to turn to your actual book and the first part is called what do human rights mean for mental health law so then can you comment on this idea of what do human rights mean for mental health law Hmm.
1: <sighs> I think I could pretty safely say that human rights today and since the advent of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities fundamentally challenges the very premise of mental health law. Now, mental health law could be understood very broadly to include all laws that relate to mental health. So that could be criminal laws uh, and things like special defences, such as... uh, unfitness to stand trial laws or legal insanity defences and so on. Um, Or you could focus it very specifically on mental health legislation, legislation which authorises the involuntary intervention uh, of people with um, mental health conditions in very specific circumstances. Uh, And so if if you focus on the first category, the broad view, which would even include things like um, thoughts around psychological injury and uh, and so on, um, then there's a there's a fundamental challenge there. But if you focus specifically on mental health legislation, there is a, a deeply uh, challenging proposition and it would really suggest that mental health legislation in its current form at least uh, would need to be uh, either completely abolished or fundamentally changed um, to, to to move away from involuntary psychiatric intervention uh, and it does so because it challenges this idea that Persons with psychosocial disability uh, or who meet the criteria of having severe mental health condition uh, plus the, the criterion of, of posing a risk of harm to themselves or others and the criterion of there being no least restrictive uh, alternative uh, is just fundamentally Challenged, it just it just is seen to be discriminatory uh, and and therefore in need of complete um, uh, removal, I suppose, to equalise the grounds for states to intervene in a person's life um, uh, to those with and without disabilities. Uh, or, or to, if you take it from the perspective of the individual, to really strengthen that um, zone of pr- protection from uh, state intervention. So I, I I would just say that it's tempting to sort of think about human rights as a, uh, a, 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 posing a requirement to reform mental health law, but I would say it's something much deeper, and, and I suppose I... I get toward that argument toward the end of my book after I explore all the different facets of the, the challenge that the CRPD poses to mental health law.
0: Now that's really interesting because it is a sort of huge and controversial challenge depending what, um, what way you look at it and we will get into those sort of controversies. Um, before we do, I just want to ask you to comment. So in the foreword of the book, the former... Um, a uh, person, uh, a special reporter to the CRPD, Catalina Devandas Aguilar, talks about this idea of rights beats legalism. Um, now, I want to find out, is that different from a sort of human rights framework and whether or not this is actually impact mental health law?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I, I suppose I could go back to the... 20th century, being um, someone who's interested in, in history and, and looking to um, mental health law as a as an area of law, which has just uh, seen a huge amount of fundamental changes in, in approach and philosophy. Um, and that's um, drawing on the work of Lawrence Goston, uh, who said there's perhaps no other body of law which has undergone so many fundamental changes. Um, And what he's referring to is the tension between two camps, one camp being the legalist camp who say any type of psychiatric intervention over the individual, uh, particularly that's non-consensual, needs to have legal oversight Um, and procedural safeguards to ensure that that's done in a way that um, uh, protects the rights of the person. On the other side, there would be those who have argued that the law needs to get out of the way and that clinical um, um, governance, I suppose, uh, should prevail and that the discretion of those with the expertise concerning um, the perceived problem uh, should have unfettered um, capacity to, to, to decide. And that would be described as medicalism. So throughout the 20th century, therefore, there's been this tense tension between a, a legalist approach and a medicalist approach. Um, and... One historian um, has described it as a pendulum swinging from one to the other. Now, in the 1980s and 90s, the language of rights started to enter into those kind of legalism perspectives uh, and things started to be couched in in terms of human rights, in terms of uh, protection of autonomy, um, in terms of... uh, the procedural safeguards that are introduced, and so you start to see this this shift um, from the 1980s onwards, really, um, of of the introduction of things like tribunals to introduce uh, procedural safeguards to o- have oversight over the um, the the decisions of, of of doctors in in these instances, and and the use of the language of rights uh, it has been described as rights-based legalism. Um, A book has been written on rights-based legalism by my colleagues, um, Professor Bernadette McSherry and Professor Penny Weller, or Penelope Weller, uh, both of whom happen to be my supervisors. Um, And and I think their book explores how rights-based legalism has been impacted by the CRPD. Uh, And I think, depending on how radical a challenge you see the CRPD as posing to mental health law. Um, you may see the CRPD as upending rights-based legalism and up- upending this idea that there is a pendulum swing from one to the other, uh, or you may see it as an evolution of rights-based legalism uh, as requiring um, additional safeguards uh, to to ensure that the terms of this the convention uh, are adhered to so it, it, it again kind of uh, forks along the lines of uh, a radical interpretation so-called of the crpd um, which calls for a, an overhaul or discarding of mental health legislation uh, and and one that is perhaps more reformist in in nature does that um
0: yeah yeah no that does is that
1: clear or does that it's make really sense
0: clear. yeah no no it's really clear and um it's a really interesting and um, actually very clear way of describing it. It's it's not when you're sort of reading the disability scholarship, I don't think there's always this sort of dichotomy of and this idea of the pendulum swinging back and forth. I don't think it comes through necessarily because a lot of scholars seem to uh, sit on one side or the other and um, there's no, uh, there's... Often, little acknowledgement. I think of the debate or the other sides. Um, no, so that that's really, really clear and really interesting. So then, I guess just stepping and just back, on that point, oh, yeah. There's
1: a there's a oh sorry. There's a no. new book by John Fanning, uh, reasonably new. There's a new book by John Fanning uh, called New Medicalism and the Mental Health Act, which looks at the um, Mental Health Act of England and Wales, and looks at the what he describes as a revival of medicalism uh, under the Act. And and so he he's a scholar who who really does draw out the that tension between the two models uh, and and looks at how it might be playing out today uh, post CRPD. Mm. So
0: that's interesting, and it it will be. Um... It will be interesting to see how that evolves, especially, you know, we've had the CRPD now for over 10 years. So, yeah, just to see where it goes from here um, and especially intersecting with sort of like politics and that sort of thing as well. So then I guess taking a step back even further from there, or perhaps um, this is difficult to answer based on what you've just said, what is the purpose, purpose then, would you say, of mental health law? And then are there sort of discrepancies between policy and application or is this something we, you know, that's difficult to navigate between?
1: I think in my book I said simply that mental health law's purpose is to codify non-consensual psychiatric treatment and and involuntary hospitalisation and to essentially regulate the powers of those given charge to do so. Um, And what I Argued, and it, it's it's not something that's an original argument of mine, is that this function has really largely unchanged since the 19th century, um, when private madhouses and, and asylums began proliferating in in at least the West. So, it's essential. Its essential role is to codify non-consensual psychiatric interventions and in, in involuntary hospitalization. That that's. I think that's fundamentally what it does. I think there were loftier ambitions um, in the 1980s era of reform toward the uh, rights-based legalism where there was a view that mental health legislation could facilitate um, the uh, voluntary treatment of people. It could um, help direct resources where they are needed um, and I just don't think there's really evidence um, that, that 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 has come to pass, um, and and so I, I suppose that just draws the focus back to this codification of involuntary treatment, and 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 rise, raises the challenge of the CRPD as to whether that ought to take place at all. Um, certainly, the CRPD committee, the primary human rights um, treaty body that is, is designated to help governments interpret the convention have said it just simply needs to go. Um, that there ought to be no forced intervention um, whatsoever on on psychiatric grounds. Um, that has been complicated by um, alternative perspectives proposed by um, another human rights treaty body. So even within the UN, the Human Rights Council, uh, Human Rights Committee rather, uh, who have indicated that there are um, lawful grounds under which uh, involuntary treatment can occur so long as the um, intervention is is lawful, that there is uh, safeguards in place and procedural protections and so on. So again, you see this forking uh, of, of, of views on what's possible um, and, and, and that Perspective by the Human Rights Treaty has largely been uh, adopted by states parties all over the country, all over the world, um, and indeed, sort of regional courts like the European Court of Human Rights. Um, so, in terms of the challenge to policy, well, I, I suppose one one contemporary expression of what the challenge of the CRPD is posing to mental health legislation is where states have indicated that they are completely unwilling to discard mental health law wholesale, Um, there have been efforts by those who are using the arguments of the CRPD to suggest, well, maybe we can revisit this question from the 1980s of whether mental health legislation can promote voluntary interventions, can promote... Um, the distribution of resources to where they are needed um, can promote uh, measures that are are free from coercion. Um, Now, I think that would be completely unacceptable to those who who see mental health law as being uh, in need of abolition um, and to suggest that it's completely sort of um, uh, counterbalanced by the provisions for involuntary intervention. but I suppose there's a sort of moderate pragmatic argument to say that, well, maybe we can actually re-gear the legislation to promote these voluntary interventions. And you're starting to see that expressed in laws like here in my own uh, jurisdiction in Victoria, Australia, uh, where there's uh, a provision currently being, um, I think it's imminent and it should appear before parliament in, in as a bill in the next two weeks, uh, where it is, it is almost certain that there will be a provision relating to the phasing out of um, the use of seclusion rooms where people are placed uh, in isolation um, in in psychiatric units. Uh, And and there may be provisions that require um, departments to provide updates on the phasing out or reduction initiatives concerning uh, coercive interventions. So I, I, I do wonder whether there's going to be a revival of that effort um, from those, again, loftier ambitions of of the 1980s and the rights-based legalism. Um, But whether that is successful uh, remains to be seen and there will, I I suspect, be some other jurisdictions which take an even more... Uh, a a much more ambitious approach. So we're starting to see that in in parts of Latin America uh, where uh, countries like Peru have um, removed their um, guardianship laws and and have tried to create essentially a sort of neutral emergency health um, intervention provision, which would suggest that it's not that you require a mental health condition, to receive intervention, it's just that there's a pressing health emergency and some kind of intervention is required. Even that is riddled with controversies um, amongst those who are CRPD proponents. So I I won't go into that, but just to say that this is the kind of um, uh, developments in mental health legislation that we're seeing, I suppose, since I wrote the book and since, since the CRPD came into effect.
0: Yeah, it's a really sort of um, difficult dilemma. On the one hand, you know, mental health law does attempt, at least in a domestic legislative framework most often, to try and grapple with situations where people are sort of assessed to be putting themselves at risk or um, perhaps others at risk. And at times, you know, from the clinical perspective, it could be argued that people doing so don't always... Um, have insight into their own condition and there is this tension of then balancing you know rights to autonomy on the other side um, which perhaps comes from the CRPD. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about this concept of risk in terms of mental health law and how it operates. And what would the CRPD say on this?
1: Sure, I mean, I, you know, I've seen you, you've written about these issues, so I know it's it's something that you, you've been grappling with, and and you would know yourself that this is just the source of the long standing controversies uh, that, that date right back through, through the couple of hundred years that we've been discussing. Um, and it's it's a really um, it's it's a really Interesting one, and and it's one that I suppose I, I tried to grapple with in chapter I think three or four of this book. I'm, it's been a while since I wrote it. Um, where the, the, the key justification for mental health legislation is that it mitigates some of those risks posed by people who are having extreme crises uh, and who may not be aware of some of the risks that are that are occurring um, around them that that, that they are. Uh, potentially subjecting themselves to or, you know, that that exist in in their current situation. Um, And mental health law is really an attempt at law to to grapple with that and try to implement some kind of protective framework. Um, The challenge, at least from an evidentiary perspective, is that there isn't much evidence that clinicians have the capacity to assess risk accurately. Um, and I go into much more detail in my book about this than, than I will here, um, including pointing to large-scale studies that have looked at sort of retrospective um, cases concerning suicide and have identified that those who had low risk were often those who had completed suicide. So the capacity for doctors to actually accurately assess who was going to pose what kind of risk was really very uh, minimal if if there was any capacity to do so at all um, to the extent that certain types of risks uh, uh, a person may as well flip a coin to determine whether it's it's there or not um, so so i think that that risk issue is one that's from an evidentiary perspective, um, not not very strongly justified to uh, to to sort of give give a sense of the purpose of mental health legislation, but politically um, and socially and culturally, I think that that risk is a is a key driver um, of. The way mental health legislation operates. I think there's just no question about that. I don't think anyone would disagree that it just pr- provides such a strong impetus for interventions. Uh, and, and I suppose it's not to sort of suggest there is no evidence for risk. One of the things that I found really difficult to grapple with um, was, and, and this is something that's hard to talk about because there is some evidence that persons with particular types of diagnoses do. Uh, Appear to propose uh, <laughs> to be at a higher risk of harming others and themselves, and and that, that that evidence is is there, and I just don't think it can be avoided. What I said in the book was that also needs to be um, looked at alongside other uh, risk profiles in the community. So. Um, for example, young men who are drinking alcohol uh, or engaging with drug use are far more likely uh, to, to harm others than almost any other demographic um, in society. Uh, and yet we don't have um, preventative measures that curtail the rights of this specific group. So we just, as a society, I suppose, live with that uh, possibility as a, as a kind of accepted expense of having freedom and and upholding equal recognition before the law, or, or people who say men who say have um, been known uh, intimate partner of violent uh, to have committed domestic violence, that that, that that is another group who who has sort of objectively a higher risk profile, uh, and yet we don't have interventions that are preventative uh, that curtail their rights um, because of this. Uh, principle of equality and so I suppose that hasn't been extended to persons with psychosocial disability because of this cultural and social uh, pressure to kind of uh, cordon them off in a way um, uh, legally and socially and uh, geographically within a city Um, but all of that said it doesn't really it, it that's all well and good but you know, for people who are in extreme crises, um, there, there, there clearly needs to be some kind of mitigating effort uh, to to ensure, well, to 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 try to ensure safety, whether of the person or or those around them. Um, and I suppose our current legal arrangements ha- have it that the role of doing so is is clinicians. In psychiatric units, who make a decision and who are then um, um, given a sort of uh, authorization by a tribunal that is made up of of different, or a tribunal or some kind of court court arrangement that um, that can confer that kind of authority and and authorise that decision. So, so what would be required to replace that and to kind of um, Breathe life into what the CRPD is, is supposed to offer. That's that's the kind of pressing question, and that's something I, I suppose I try to address later in the book, and and others have done so in, in far more depth and detail than than I have endeavoured to do in that book. I mean, the, one of the latest is um, Tina Minkovitz's uh, publication on rethinking um, crisis support. I'm not exactly sure of the um, title, but uh, I'm sure we can include a link to it later but um, th- these are the kind of efforts that are underway now and I understand the World Health Organization is preparing some guidelines on mental health related law reform which which are endeavouring to, to paint this, this vision of, of what could be possible as an alternative and, and various countries and regional bodies are looking at what are described sometimes as alternatives to coercion or measures to prevent and reduce coercion, various other kind of ways of describing this this shift.
0: Yeah, as you say, it's an incredibly difficult and complex dilemma. And I, I think you're right, it's really difficult to talk about um, this sort of idea that we're handing over so much power to clinicians um, to make a decision about what's good for someone's treatment um, and then also over to the tribunal and it doesn't happen necessarily to other people who are necessarily high risk or deemed high risk based on an, on an evidentiary basis. So then um, looking at these sort of alternatives to coercion in a clinical setting, um, you also write about in recent decades there's been a rise of psychiatric interventions outside of hospitals and inside people's residence, So in the community. Now, on the one hand, there is this argument that um, about therapeutic beneficence, um, and it's better to treat people in the community, as opposed to being in hospital. Um, On the other hand, I do think there's probably significant rights implications in extending this sort of like, coercion, whether it's wanted or unwanted into community settings. And this sort of arm of um, coercive control into people's homes. I wonder if you can comment on this and the sort of difficulties inherent in this.
1: Sure. Yeah, this kind of um, what is sometimes described as community treatment orders or assertive outpatient treatment are the kind of policy mechanisms for for what you describe uh, of involuntary interventions in people's homes or residences and just as an aside the editor for the book suggested why are you saying homes and residences aren't they the same thing and i remember at the time thinking oh yeah why am i saying that Uh, but then the more i thought about it the more i thought well actually a lot of people with disabilities including persons with psychosocial disabilities live in residential arrangements that aren't homes or they are homes only in the crudest sense of a place to dwell but don't really have the characteristics of what makes a a home a place of of warmth and and meaning so anyway that's an incidental aside Um, but this growth of um, involuntary treatment in people's homes and residences occurred in the 1980s under the rights-based legalism Reforms, and it was a really a, 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 a an extension of the closure of institutions into the community, and it was perhaps in in some jurisdictions seen as a way to um, for clinicians thinking about it in terms of their treating patients um, as a way to extend the treatment of patients that they might otherwise not have done. Uh, For those who are subject to them, that might have been a a completely different experience and described as um, a coercive control um, over their lives uh, in ways that were entirely unwelcome um, and without evidence base and so on. And so there are certain jurisdictions that implemented this quite early. So again, in my own jurisdiction, Victoria, this is one of the um, world-leading jurisdictions in terms of the high rates of community treatment orders, whereas if you go to the other side of the country, uh, Western Australia, there are very low rates, and that's because historically this wasn't possible under uh, Western Australian law. And so, in, in in this jurisdiction, Victoria, it's it's seen by some senior um, uh, Department of Health officials, or at least previously, as as a less restrictive alternative to hospital. And so, the argument uh, carries a great deal of. Um, moral force in a way because they they suggest well you know it's better for them to be at home than in hospital and um, this is a less restrictive alternative so in that sense it's adhering to the principle of mental health legislation that says treatment must be in the least restrictive uh, way and it was only later that jurisdictions like England and Wales introduced these in in the 2000s although there were sort of smaller forms of it Um, and There were proponents there, as I outlined in my book, who were were adamant that it would be helpful. And then they undertook further uh, research into the practice once it was introduced and realized that it wasn't producing um, benefits that were proposed. It wasn't reducing hospitalizations and and other um, outcome measures. Uh, and so have then come out uh, against it. Uh, but by the time it was put in place, uh, I, th- I think it can be very difficult politically uh, to to withdraw it. And as um, one psychiatrist who I um, quoted in my book um, said that it becomes entrenched as a part of practice and then uh practitioners are very uh, loath to give it up and partly it offers uh, so some of the research suggests a way to ensure that particular individuals are receiving treatment and this comes back to this voluntary question that there's there's an argument that says well if they weren't on this order they wouldn't be getting treatment they wouldn't there's not enough treatment to go around, so they wouldn't be getting nurses visiting them, uh, and so therefore I don't put them on this necessarily to coerce them. I do so to in- ensure that um, they're getting supports, any supports. But others have just said, well, this is a, a needless um, incursion of rights because therefore, um, if that's your justification, then we should rethink the whole thing and just ensure that there is enough. Uh, support to go around, and it's the kind of support that people want rather than need to be placed onto a coercive order to to receive. So I, I, th- I think I, I'll leave it at that. But there is, needless to say, a, a long and um, contentious literature on on this type of intervention. But but it is interesting. Maybe the last thing I'll say is that it's interesting that it came about in the 1980s under this guise of rights-based legalism, and it it perhaps suggests the limits of this rights-based legalism, because on the one hand, they say, yes, we're introducing the language of rights and introducing procedural safeguards, but on the other hand, we are extending forms of state control into the community in ways that never existed before. Uh, And so there's some arguments that this is a kind of neoliberal governance where there's uh, less focus on large-scale institutions from the kind of post-war social welfare um, state era and a greater uh, emphasis on a sort of diffusion of uh, coercive intervention in people's lives into communities uh, but also sort of leaving people out on their own. to sort of take care of themselves, but with only kind of uh, minor um, uh, interventions, such as say, minor, minor in the sense of like time and resources, uh, but I suppose major in the person's life in terms of say a monthly depot injection or, or whatever it might be.
0: Yeah, I guess it depends on whether you consider, or one of the issues is whether you consider all interventions being the same. And also I think um, how you sort of interpret the idea of autonomy is it is coercing people into treatment, um, even if it is in the community, is that actually supporting their autonomy, enabling them to make um, decisions and act on their own if they actually don't, if they need to be coerced into doing so and if, you know, they would actually prefer they express will and preference to do otherwise. Um, I think these are very um, complex issues. Please go on.
1: Well, I mean, I, I would just say you've touched on um, a, a, pr- a problem that we haven't really spoken about so far, which, which is that underlying all of these debates are really disputed premises regarding the impact of... Mental disorder, or however you describe it, mental health crises, or, or these kind of extreme emotional states, upon a person's ability to make autonomous decisions. So it comes very much back to this question of autonomy, that you, as you've said, um, and I, I quote someone called Willis Spalding, who describes this conceptual controversy as arising from competing understandings of the relationship between liberty. And mental disorder. So again, that's using the sort of psychiatric language. But I think that underlies it all, and it and it um, draws attention to how the CRPD conceptualizes autonomy, and and what I think goes to those key questions around legal capacity, um, as various sort of scholars who've looked at legal capacity as it's formulated in the CRPD. And I'm thinking here of Jared Quinn, Theresa Dejaner, Tina Minkiewicz, uh, Eleanor, Fli- Eleanor Flynn-Anna Arstein-Kerslake, um, and, and various others, um, Peter Bartlett. I mean, everyone ha- is grappling with this fundamental challenge that the CRPD poses to questions of autonomy. Uh, and they're posed by, I suppose, the broad disability movement who have said, this conceptualization of autonomy, uh, is flawed, the, 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 the conceptualization of autonomy that underlies um, most Western legal traditions and which have uh, variously been exported, typically through sort of forms of colonisation and so on, uh, are, are fundamentally flawed because they view the individual leg- legal subject as autonomous, as, as uh, sorry, independent, rationalistic uh, and atomized. Uh, which is which is not true to how human beings are which is interdependent and uh, relational um, and and steeped in kind of emotion and so on and and that that, that is a far more honest and true reflection of human uh, being than than this flawed rationalistic legal model. Uh, and so I think that's that's a really key intervention of the CRPD in challenging this um, controversy about the relationship between mental disorder and autonomy, because in a way it sort of sidesteps the the attempt. It sidesteps that debate in a way and says, hold on, this this whole way we're describing autonomy is fundamentally flawed. Um, let's look at the traditions of feminist scholarship that have. Um, really challenge this idea of the autonomous, typically male, uh, independent, atomistic legal subject and say that we're all interdependent to various degrees, and that persons with disabilities typically just show uh, that interdependence to a greater degree uh, than than maybe the, the norm statistically, um, but that at every person at various points in their life will be in various states of dependence and um, interdependence. Uh, And so to to really accept that and accept the kind of inherent dignity of all persons with disabilities and and reject this idea that some groups deserve special restrictions because of the nature of their being, um, you you really reframe the whole question and it becomes about, well, how do we engage with this... Um, more honest appraisal of autonomy and the individual and what do we do in situations of crisis to protect their rights um, and and provide the kind of support that's needed. So
0: yeah, that's, those um, are
1: big questions and challenging yeah. issues.
0: Yeah, I think it's almost the million dollar question, isn't it really? Um, what do we do? And... Um, I don't know if it's been solved satisfactorily in the sense that, you know, the argument comes from one side of the fence and it's accepted by those on the other side. So, you know, hopefully we can all keep working together and move that forward. So then um, what I actually want to ask you, and this, it's actually one of the, the chapters in your book, and it relates to what we've been talking about. So... Does the CRPD provide us with new, to, with new tools to solve these issues, or is is it a paradigm shift? Would you say?
1: Um, well, I would say both. I, I think it does provide new tools, and and I, I think it provides new options, um, and and it does shift the paradigm. I mean, if you're if you're fundamentally challenging hundreds of years of Conceptualizations of, of the individual and autonomy and legal capacity and and the will and questions of reason, <laughs> then then you are you are sort of introducing something that you could probably justifiably call a paradigm shift. I mean, I've sort of moved away from that language because I just see I saw a, an interesting uh, study in Australia about. Jargon words that people resent, and I think paradigm was one of them. <laughs> so I thought, in the interests of, of respecting sort of uh, public views of of um, of, of jargon words, uh, maybe we should rethink using that word here. But but I think if, if you literally look at the definition, um, there is a, a strong argument to be made that that the CRPD does fundamentally challenge some of these conceptualizations of the legal subject so to move from that abstract um issue to to the kind of new tools well i I think it does it's pointing it's pointing toward practices that do exist around the world um for responding to people in coercive free ways uh and 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 i point to some of those in my book but many of many more have emerged since so so um can certainly be um, expanded upon with, with reference to other, other work that's been going on uh, by those who are trying to compile examples of good practices uh, from around the world. Um, and, and yeah, so, uh, uh, the example I was giving before was, was from Tina Minkovitz, and that's called Reimagining Crisis Support, uh, which, which uh, calls for a new approach to crisis su- support in law and policy. Um, but there are other 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 works out there as well. I, I worked on a, a report with my colleagues here, uh, Professor Bernadette McSherry, Miss Kath Roper, uh, and Miss Flick Gray, on alternatives to coercion, and and that was um, a report that was commissioned by the UN Special Rapporteur for the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, uh, and it re- concerns um, the various uh, studies and uh, grey literature concerning alternatives to coercion or ways to prevent, reduce and eliminate coercion in in crisis support and mental health care uh, around the world. Uh, And that really tried to provide some of the concrete examples um, and so draw draw attention to perhaps what you've described as new tools uh, for thinking about this. Um, in terms of sort of legal reform, I think there's examples from around the world, the Peruvian example that I did, uh, briefly described, um, and and, and other, other examples that would be far more moderate cons- uh, from the perspective of a body like the CRPD committee, um, where there's just been a- attempts to really strengthen the focus on voluntary inter- interventions and support um, and move away from coercion. Um, and, and I think that fundamental challenge to a best interest pr- principle, I think that's that's really um, a key as well. And I suppose it's a little bit abstract rather than kind of concrete tools, but you, d- you are starting to see now psychiatrists and associations um, and mental health pr- practitioner associations really grappling with this challenge to best interest, which I think has just been such a core part of the work of those professional traditions. Um, that 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 pushback against the paternalism that underlies it is, is underway. Um, and, and I think it's just playing out probably in, in debates and panel discussions all over the world.
0: Mm. And then turning a bit more, you just talked about support and talking about the support um, framework that's introduced by the CRPD and the way that it does challenge these paternalistic, traditional structures, can you talk perhaps more in depth and maybe provide some examples or just in terms of how the CRPD support framework actually operates, how it can guide policy and practices or how it might do um, in this context of mental health law?
1: Right. Sure. I I think this is something I addressed in the later part of the book um, and... uh, I use support framework in a fairly specific way that, um, given that I wrote it five or six years ago, sort of escapes me um, in detail. But I think what I was uh, getting at was that instead of viewing mental health law as something that needs to be tinkered with through the ideas of the CRPD, that supported decision making and the broader support framework of the CRPD requires a much broader change to a range of different laws, uh, and that would include criminal laws of, of um, special defenses, uh, and which I don't really write about in the book, but which I've written about since and, and been involved with some activities there. Um, but but it, it would require a, a much broader range of of um, supports both in terms of crisis responses that aren't necessarily just in hospitals that um, provide various forms of crisis support uh, in, in in options for people um, in their homes uh, that would involve um, ensuring people have inclusive lives that, that are involved in community with options to kind of be part of community and to have adequate housing and so on. Um, and then have a sort of legal structure that provides the um, grounds to uh, provide legal capacity-based support. So support for people to exercise their legal capacity. I think what I was getting at in the book is that supported decision-making is one facet of support to exercise legal capacity. So supporting a person to make decisions about their care is one or anything in their life about um, where they live and what they do and their finances and so on is one element. But we have to go broader than that because certain kinds of crises, mental health crises, um, aren't amenable to simply assisting a person to make a decision. There will be moments where something needs to happen that involves that person um, where it might not be possible to assess what their will and preference is about a particular thing. Uh, Or there might be an extremely grave risk um, that is objectively at hand, so a person running towards a busy freeway or... um, you know someone saying i i i really need support and um i don't know what to do i just don't know what to do or someone shutting down and just not expressing any kind of will or preference and they're sitting outside in, in the freezing cold um, so there will be a need to um, intervene and to have some kind of legal structure that allows for that um and then there's many debates about what that should look like whether it should be minimalist in terms of like not articulating all of the kind of instances in which that should occur or sort of um Maximalist in in having sort of more tribunals and and things that would really kind of uh, oversee and scrutinise decisions and support relationships and so on, but but effectively it would be it would be some kind of support framework that is general to all members of the community. It's not uh, disability specific and discriminates against particular disability groups, um, and and would provide some kind of uh, framework for responding to crises
0: mm. and then just picking up finally on this point of universal support and this sort of prohibition potentially argue prohibition of coercion under the CRPD your last chapter is called the flashing um, navigating the flashing amber lights of the CRD support framework addressing major concerns can you talk a little bit more about what you mean here
1: Sure. Well, I think we, we've touched upon some of the major concerns that people have raised. Major concerns people have raised are that this will allow people to. Um, uh, this, this is fetishising autonomy, and, it, and it's and it's using sometimes. Sometimes people would say this is uh, an expression of a kind of neoliberal uh, obsession with autonomy and self determination that is utterly individualistic, uh, and simply provides an unrealistic view about um, this issue by um, emphasising the will and preferences of the person when when that's an inadequate frame to respond to the kind of crises, crises that we're talking about. And so by removing these long hard fought for protections that the mental health legislation has refined over many decades with various forms of safeguarding involving tribunals to authorise decisions and uh, mechanisms for assisting people in crisis, that that, that this will undermine all of that. Um, It will leave people to, in the words of a psychiatrist in the 70s, die with their rights on. So I suppose in that chapter I try to go through each of those major concerns uh, and try to respond. Uh, Another one would be that well, how do you know when to introduce supported decision-making and how do you know when to then introduce something that is different from supported decision-making in those hard cases that I described, where there is a grave risk, where there is some imminent disaster that could happen, uh, where some urgent medical matter or mo- need to move a person occurs? How do you determine who fits that bill and what circumstances does that apply to? and won't we just be repeating the same problems in trying to define who fits into that bill? Because surely won't it be the majority people who have mental health diagnoses? And therefore, aren't we simply discriminating uh, in a a different way without formally discriminating, but actually informally discriminating? And I suppose I go through and try to, uh, respond to some of those challenges. Another one was net widening. There, there's a concern that if we make it non-disability specific um, and we expand it to all persons, that that will just open the gates for the state to intervene over the lives of many people, older people, um, people who are uh, seen to be drug affected or you know marginalised groups effectively. Uh, and so don't we want to prevent something like that and isn't this a pragmatic way to prevent it? So... Those kind of questions, I try to grapple with, and and, and uh, I, I hope it still stands up. Um, I, I'd say some of those arguments have evolved uh, greatly in the last seven years, but um, at the very least, uh, I I tried to engage with them at that time, and I thought it was a really good way to try to give um, fair airtime to those who have genuine concerns about the the proposal. And there are many, I mean, this is a a live controversy, even, I mean, still today as as well, you know. Um, And I wanted to give, try to express those arguments as concisely and clearly as possible. And, and really try to grapple with them from the perspective of what groups like the Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities are saying, as well as abolitionist uh, groups and, you know, arguments coming from um, very prominent sort of user and survivor perspectives.
0: Yeah, no, and I think you do. And I think it is important to sort of grapple with all sides because, you um, As much as we would like to, we can't always approach this from a sort of CRPD committee perspective. We are working with policymakers, um, people on the ground who are implementing legislation and policy um, and interpreting it as well on a day-to-day basis. So then adopting a CRPD as a sort of lens of analysis, are there any recommendations you would make at this time or do you think we, we need more work?
1: Oh, I mean, I think if people want to see any of the recommendations that I make, they're probably better off looking at some of the written material that I've done because I'll probably have, have expressed it more concisely. But um, um, I suppose the work that I've done with my colleagues, Kath Roper, Flick Gray and Bernadette McSherry, are, are, are where I'm perhaps most proud of. Or, or at least I feel most confident that the, that there's value in some of the recommendations that are made because we we really try to draw the focus down from those abstract controversies about the nature of autonomy and interdependent uh, relational being and so on uh, and into the weeds of, of initiatives from around the world that have really seriously tried to provide coercion-free support. Um, and so I think the, the the kind of recommendations made from that were were really kind of interesting and and exciting to me because because they did deal with that on the ground practical work that's being done by by governments, by um, user survivor organisations, by organisations representing persons with disabilities, but also by by clinicians and by um, hospital managers and others who are really trying to um, put their money where their mouth is or try to try to get this this movement happening on the ground in, in in the lives of people who for whom it's supposed to be all about. So I think that's often where some of the best the best most concrete solutions can can arise and it also maybe draws us away from the temptation to say oh it's all very complex. It's all very complex because I think sometimes that um, turn towards complexity is is a an academics' temptation that is is not always very fruitful and can sometimes be a, a cop out, really. So I think that emphasis on the practical politics of people trying to do it um, on the ground can be can be a really fruitful place to to explore.
0: Yeah, I really love that, um, just really foregrounding and keeping in mind at all times, like it's actually for the lives of people who this is supposed to be about um, and how, yeah, we can grapple and engage with these sort of practical politics and not just throw our hands up and sort of say, oh, it is it is too complex, it's too difficult. Now, um, and what I will do, I'll put all the links to, some of the um, the work that you've mentioned that you've been doing and also Tina Minkowitz's work and that sort of thing. So I'll put the links in the end um, of the notes with this show. So now, Piers, I've taken up a lot of your time, but before you go, can I just ask you our final New Books in Law traditional question? What are you working on now?
1: Um, I'm working on two strains of work, really. I on the one hand, I'm extending some of this work on the UN Convention by looking at this practical empirical research and activity concerning creating coercion-free forms of support. Now, we've taken a pragmatic lens of looking to those who aren't seeking to abolish but are also seeking to reduce and and prevent forms of coercion, and that's going to be... Um, unacceptable to those, I think, from the radical perspective who might say, well, you know, you don't look for alternatives to child abuse, do you? You, you just try to stamp it out. Um, and that's a, a really reasonable position. So, I, I mean, that's a understandable position coming from that kind of place of, of, of holding that kind of uh, perspective on, on involuntary intervention. But I suppose in trying to work with governments there is a need to um to make some of those arguments and even in a situation where all coercion was abolished i would argue there is still a need to look at what has worked in reducing where there might be temptations to resort back to forms of coercion so i'm really interested in that question of 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 what kind of research would be helpful uh in in trying to Create this vision for, for coercion free support, uh, and in that sense, extending on the work of that um, alternatives to coercion report. And, and I'm quite interested in, in, in what that research agenda would look like because one of the observations that I've, I've made in recent work is that psychiatrists and psychiatric professionals, mental health practitioner groups, have really spent very little time looking at the empirical basis for coercion as in like why it's justified and what 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 can be uh, said to be achieved by it in practical terms, but also how you can effectively reduce it. And if that group is operating under this principle of trying to do things in the least restrictive way, well, I would argue there ought to be a research agenda that's concerned with providing support in the least restrictive possible way. Now that's starting to change in the last five years. There has been investment of money and attention and resources to finding alternatives amongst those groups, but they are bringing their research traditions to that uh, effort. And I think there's a whole other body of knowledge arising from the work of people with disabilities and service user and survivor groups uh, that really deserve um, attention both in simply having them involved or leading research of this nature but also in looking to the kind of methodologies that are preferred uh, and the types of research design that are that are useful in, in trying to bring about um, these kinds of changes. So that's one area of research that I'm very excited about and another concerns the rising use of um, algorithmic and data-driven technology in, in, in mental health settings um, whether through online therapy or uh, other forms of interventions such as um, what is so-called digital phenotyping where mobile phones are used to glean behaviour and make inferences about a person's mental state or or cognitive uh, state uh, and and therefore to undertake health interventions of some sort. So I'm I'm very interested in the implications of that change to the way um, uh, mental health services are, are being provided and, and so on. And, and that's particularly so since the pandemic when a, a lot of our lives have moved online and, and certainly that's played out in the, in the mental health context too.
0: That all sounds like very, very interesting. Um, and like very uh, while Divergent also overlapping and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out of both of those projects. Both sound really exciting. So just to bring it to a close, I'm Jane Richards. This is New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I've been speaking with Dr. Piers Gooding about his book, A New Era for Mental Health Law and Policy, Supported Decision Making and the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Piers, thank you so much for your time today.